CityCast from Explicity. Sabarkar identified Muslims and not the British as the enemy for four probable reasons. The first was the loss of power. Just as the Muslims found themselves powerless and victimized after 1857, some sections of Hindus, especially the Brahmins, had felt the same sense of powerlessness with the arrival of the Muslims. The invaders did not bother them so much. They came, plundered and went away. In fact, the invaders came in handy when the narration of cruelty had to be built. However, those who stayed back to make India their home found new empires and created their own kind of social structure for the disruptors as they co-opted the local Hindus, mainly non-Brahmins, in their enterprises and perpetuated the powerlessness of the Brahmin class. This is the reason the Hindu right-wing movement in India, whether the Hindu Mahasabha or the RSS has been spearheaded by Brahmins, the caste that was the first to adopt an English education and a westernized lifestyle because they suffered from what V.S. Naipaul called an amalgam of self-adoration and self-contempt. A consequence of this was the deliberate vilification of the Muslims propelled by social and economic insecurity. The second reason Muslims were targeted was because with the collapse of the Mughal Empire and the British reprisals, After the revolt of 1857, Muslims as a community were considerably weakened and insecure. They were an easy enemy to take on. 3. Given the global rivalry between Christianity and Islam, there was a case for Hindu-British partnership against the Muslims. And 4. The long history of Muslim rule, running into several centuries, had greater potential for revision and distortion to build the narrative of unending Hindu victimhood. To this end, writes Pankaj Mishra, Savarkar built a lurid narrative of Muslims humiliating Hindus, but he also played up Muslims' fierce unity of faith, that social cohesion and valorous fervor which made them a body so irresistible. He gushed enviously about the Prophet and the world dissemination of Islam through the deft use of the sword. Historicity means little in the face of belief. Hence, once the Muslims were identified as the enemy, the next step was to vilify them by portraying them as a threat to the nation as well as a subhuman, uncivilized creature unfit for an ancient civilization like India. This thought was once again influenced by Christian Europe, whose Islamophobia goes back to the 7th century. I quote Stephen Throth here, The Western horror of Islam began with its early rapid expansion, which seemed irresistible, and its terrifying reputation was strengthened by the later victories of Islamic arms during the Crusades, the Arab conquest and the Christian reconquest of Spain, the Ottoman invasions of the Balkans and Central Europe, and maritime conflicts between Christian states and Muslim navies from Morocco to Cyprus. An immediate consequence of this was the vilification and degeneration of Islam as a desert cult and Prophet Muhammad as a desert bandit. On the other hand, the Quran does not only not degenerate the prophets of Judaism and Christianity, it honors them as its own since Islam's theological history comes out of the book of Genesis in the Bible. Prophet Muhammad is believed to have been a descendant of Abraham. one of the most revered and frequently mentioned prophets in the Quran. What's more, an early Quranic verse in Surah Al-Anam forbids Muslims from insulting gods of other religions.
A very interesting study at Hebrew University found that the brain inflates numbers under some circumstances. University psychologists call this a diversity illusion because in two experiments they asked Israelis and Americans to assess the size of minorities, Arabs in one case, African Americans in the other, who lived amongst them. In both cases, people believed that there were far more people from the minorities than there actually were. Researchers concluded that this is due to the mind's tendency to focus on and amplify that which is out of the ordinary. In the first experiment, both Arab and Jewish students at the university were asked to estimate what percentage of the student body is Arab. Jewish students estimated that number to be 31%, and Arab students said 35% were Arabs. They were both pretty sure, but both pretty wrong. In fact, only 12% of the student body was Arab. In another experiment, American participants were shown a grid of 100 student faces with about 25% African-American faces randomly scattered. But both white and black participants overestimated the percentage of black faces. They thought it was in the region of 40% of the total. To be sure, the researchers went over the tests again, but again, same results. I ran this test at home with a European houseguest, exactly the same result. Psychologists have concluded that such overestimation of minority numbers results from an innate intolerance. Most reasonable people want to live in an equitable society. Most of them find themselves in the center of a larger political equation. And that political equation has to include the participation of those who are not a part of the majority. While people in the minority generally get a pretty good understanding of the majority, it is good civics that the majority too should get a better understanding of the people among us who are of a different persuasion. The active verb in persuasion is to persuade, and there are many forms of persuasion, from coaxing to coercion. And when gentle persuasion turns into political propaganda and even jingoist rhetoric, the thinking of a good section of the polity in the middle is influenced enough to swing from the middle towards one of the ends. And soon people arrive at all manners of ugly consensus and illogical conclusions. My guest today is Ghazala Wahab, the author of a newsmaking book, Born a Muslim. Reading some of the reviews of her book, I got the impression that many reviewers fell to assuming that Ghazala had written her book to protest the growing sentiment being manufactured against the Muslim minority, especially in India. The interviews that I read or heard seemed to approach their subject with a certain premeditated wokeness and support, support of what they thought was Ghazala's position. To be candid, I first approached the book the same way. I thought that the book would seek to educate non-Muslims about the religion and the practices of Islam with the underlying appeal for a more compassionate appreciation of an increasingly marginalized people. But reading the book set me straight. Ghazala's book takes the argument inwards, a Muslim speaking to fellow Muslims introspectively and providing the rest of us a window through which we can peer. It is written without any of the sentimental and at times even plaintive hooks that so easily and so often define the texts of marginalized or dispossessed people. 
And to add to that, Ghazala is editor of Force India, a magazine about national security, principally defense matters. And she co-authored the book Dragon on Our Doorstep, Managing China Through Military Power. Now, after I read Born a Muslim, I couldn't wait to speak to the author. So here she is, Ghazala Wahab, Welcome to the Literary City. Thank you so much. Your book, Born a Muslim, was released a little over a year ago, wasn't it? Uh, that's right, in uh, March 2021. And that means that I'm a little late to the party, but on the flip side, it liberates me in many ways. <laughs> yes, that's true. Now, as I read the book and waded deeper into it, I gained the impression that you had written that book aimed principally at fellow Muslims. Would that be a reasonable conclusion? Uh, yes. Actually, that is how the book or the idea of the book began. Uh, I, I, I write a monthly column in the magazine which I edit. So the, the idea of the book uh, emerged principally from there, especially on my writings on terrorism. So I felt that uh, this was such a misunderstood uh, idea, uh, both by the Muslims and by the non-Muslims. And uh, though sounding very bad, but uh, I didn't really much care about the non-Muslims misunderstanding it as much as I cared about Muslims misunderstanding it because they they were misunderstanding it and carrying out violence in the name of religion. So I thought I needed to uh, address them and talk to them directly. So originally, that is how the book was conceptualized. And once I came to that understanding, it gave me the context to be able to read and understand the rest of the book, and its nuances. And one of the nuances is that you are critical of the Muslim mindset in some cases. Yes. And in the focus of your book, you were neither provoking a debate nor reaching out for sympathy. No, I, I wasn't. Uh, actually, I, I feel that uh, if, if you are one amongst the people, then you have, you can take liberties with them. Uh, probably I wouldn't dare write a book uh, of this nature on any other religion. Uh, but I, I could do it because I thought that I had an inside view of the religion and being a, not a very conservative person and being uh, reasonably, uh, I would not say non-practicing, but uh, somebody who had a very easygoing approach towards the practice of religion. Uh, I have been open to a lot of other uh, ideas and influences, which I think has helped me in a very constructive way. And I thought this is a kind of an experience which I can bring to my book in my uh, supposed address to my own people. And, um, and without being questioned back that what is my uh, authority or what is my position to talk about these issues. Though I, a lot of Muslims do get back at me uh, talking about this, like digging out old pictures of my, my family photographs from on social media and saying that I have no business commenting on Islam. I'm not a uh, Muslim in the real sense. But uh, th that number is very, very small. Uh, the majority uh, has actually uh, taken the book uh, in the spirit it was written. And I have uh, very surprisingly received so many calls from Muslims and elderly Muslims saying that, oh, but and this is a story of my house also. Uh, I, I felt when I was reading this that you were telling my story. Uh, the struggle with the conservative elements, the struggle with modernity, the, uh, 
the struggle of being uh, the fear of being sidelined a fear of not getting equal opportunities uh, the uh, balancing of your life your public and personal life uh, so uh, and on top of this the overhang of being a minority um, in a country which was increasingly becoming majoritarian so i think a majority of my readers muslim readers have um, come back to me with very positive feedback um, i'll just take two minutes more and uh, to explain what i'm saying uh, the urdu version of the book is going to come out end of this year uh, and this translation is I was going being, to ask <laughs> the translation is being done by muslims uh th- there is a muslim scholar who has reached out to the publishers and they want to translate it in kannada another muslim scholar from kerala has also reached out so they are in talks uh, they want to bring out a malayalam edition so basically it's muslims who ha- are trying to uh, make the book more easily available uh, to the audience which uh, is not comfortable reading english so i think that that has been the biggest reward i would say um, that i could have ever imagined and that's great it's always fulfilling when the target audience responds intellectually to something that you've written but as i said in the monologue some of the reviewers seem to have inserted themselves into your narrative <laughs> without really either reading or understanding the book even i tend to do that when i'm meeting or interviewing somebody so i think that's um, th- that's a very bad habit they have an opinion they have this problem so i'm also uh, guilty of that that's very charitable of you to say <laughs> but you know isn't there a case for shut up and listen <laughs> yes yes i would i would say that and i would tell myself the same <laughs> <laughs> well don't we all so now you know uh, you speak of the insularity uh, in your book now all muslims are not stamped from the same gray mold are they and insularity is not uniquely a muslim thing absolutely so first to the matter of uh, stereotyping muslims across the country you made the point that muslims across the country are remarkably different one from another i'd like principally to talk about the uh, muslims in the south versus the muslims in the north let's start with the south uh, it came first to uh, the coastal southern coastal belt of india and it came through arabia and they were trading uh, even before islam came so they were familiar with these people these were traders and if you just think about trade how it would happen in those days uh, these uh, shiploads of people would come and stay here for for months maybe if not years on end uh, selling their wares and picking up buying stuff from here and taking it back and similarly the indians would be doing the same the people from the southern india would be traveling to arabia and staying there for years uh, so that that is a very dif- distinctive feature about the uh, south indian and the coastal islam uh, which is very uh, very conservative i see as compared to the north i, I would say there were greater cultural musical uh, influences in the north because apart from the invaders uh, th- th- there was the stream of sufis who were coming in there was stream of musicians artisans crafts people who usually follow the king because that's where the money is i somehow got the impression that you said that the south indian view of islam was more benign than the north because the north 
had been subject to uh, invasions. Uh, actually, that impacted that impacted the way people related to Muslims. So in South India, the acceptance of Muslims was greater because it did not come through sword. Uh, it came mainly through trade and commerce, and people were interdependent on one another. In the no in North India, though uh, the impact of sword was uh, uh, limited to certain parts, and Islam spread, uh, you know, far beyond uh, where the sword could go. Uh, but the response of the local population towards the Muslims was different because of that, because of the invasions, because of not only because of uh, the rulers who came and ruled, as I was reading from this portion, but the in the plunderers like Abdalis or the Ghoris or uh, Gaz. So th these were the people who have left behind uh, memories, and nobody remembers. But <laughs> obviously, when you're talking about this and you're narrating once uh, after generation after generation, you're narrating the same story. So the memories are of that of uh, bloodshed, of uh, desecrations, of rape, pillage. So th that is the difference. Right. But you do have stories of Muslims who were welcomed and integrated, sometimes even into the management of kingdoms, like the minister for the Pandians. On the matter of insularity, however, you quote uh, Waliullah as saying that Islam had got watered down with, quote, cohabitation with Hinduism, that society had become indistinguishable at the social and cultural level. Uh, it's... Uh See, when they were living together, and uh, obviously not all Muslims came from outside. There was a lot of intermarrying happening here. A lot of uh, conversions were happening. But it's not easy to uh, give up your age-old beliefs and you know completely change over to a new belief. It was a halfway house. They drew some sort of a comfort from the new religion that they had embraced. But they also did not want to leave their old practices and customs, which are you know part of the uh, system, uh, whether it was marriage, deaths, or uh, celebrations, or symbols of uh, celebrations, which are, you know, just endemic to their whole existence, you know, to get more enmeshed in this new society. Even those who came from outside also adopted the lifestyles of those, uh, the new Muslims here, the native Muslims. Even today, our culture is similar. It's all geographical culture. Our, uh, the uh, marriage rituals, I mean, except for the fact that there are pheras and there are, there's a nikah, but pre-marital uh, rituals are identical, whether it's, you know, in North India, you have a thing like called, where you put haldi on the bride and the groom. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's common to all religions uh, or wearing of red. Uh, the bride wears red in North India, whether it's she's a Hindu bride or a Muslim bride. Uh, it's red is the auspicious color. Muslims in North India or the UP belt, they don't apply tikka and sindoor. Right. But uh, Muslims uh, in West Bengal uh, did that also. They applied sindoor. Married women would apply sindoor. Uh, in South India, a married woman would wear a tila, uh, which is that round thing, you, uh, which is a symbol of marriage. Uh, so I, I think uh, this was only natural that something like this would happen. And that was the reason why uh, when people like Shah Waliullah, they went to Arabia for Hajj and they saw how the Arabian Muslims were uh, leading their lives, they felt that this is the model of Muslim. This is how a Muslim should be. So they wanted this sort of a uniformity in Muslims 
everywhere. They imagined that Islam uh, meant a Muslim to look like this, the way the uh, Saudi or the Arabian uh, man or a woman looks like. He started talking about uh, a Muslim should not only be a Muslim in faith, but in appearance also. So this idea of an Islamic appearance, uh, that was the first time this was brought out in India, that a Muslim need to have an appearance. Uh, otherwise, Islam as a religion has no concept of a physical appearance. And then you also quote uh, Kamar Rahman. Yes, Kamar Rahman. Now, Kamar Rahman, uh, he called for a moderate and progressive Muslim, which he described as Islam in its truest form. We did just speak of uniformity, and uniformity is another word for insularity because one causes the other, and that causes tribalism. And the purpose of tribalism is to create a certain political homogeneity so that a diktat can travel across more people. I agree with you completely. So I think this, uh, what you're saying, I agree with you completely. This is also a tool by which you can control a vast number of people. You know, you just say one thing and everybody fall, falls in line. Uh, so it, it's just a mechanism of controlling people. And that is something that is common to so many religions, if not all of them. But now coming to the middle of your book, you devote over a hundred pages thereabouts to a general description of Islam. Now, Personally, I found it fascinating, but the question I have to ask is, was it necessary and how is your text different from the many other texts that exist on the subject? Actually, it's not different. It's only different. The only difference is in the way it has been presented. I mean, uh, I have picked up uh, information, I have picked up references from all other writers who have written about Islam and Islamic uh, practice. So it's not that I am doing something which is uh, new or unique or I'm presenting my perspective. It's just that I have presented it in the manner it came to me, the way I understood it. Why so detailed a text and who is it directed at? Uh, both. Muslims and Hindus. I'll tell you why. Because when I read the Quran, when I started to read the Quran, I was reading it in Arabic without understanding a word of it. Uh, I Nobody in my family understands it. And uh, I have a family of very uh, reasonably conservative people also. Uh, my mother is a great practitioner of uh, religion. She says her namaz five times a day. She fasts uh, 30 days uh, during Ramzan. So she's, a, she's, a, she's as devout a Muslim as you would find. But even she doesn't understand anything. And her, most Muslims in uh, my experience is from India. So I can only talk about India. Uh, most Muslims in India, uh, when they talk, of something that Islam says. They're actually not re referring to the Quran itself. They're referring to the ancillary text. They're referring to the Hadith. Yeah, the hadith. And they use this interchangeably uh, without realizing that actually Hadiths were written something like 200 years after the death of the Prophet. So it's, it's impossible that they can be taken seriously and they, they would be accurate. Who remembers anything after 10 years or 15 years? So somebody who actually sat down compiling these memories of people who were long dead, uh, how could those, those be uh, taken as seriously as the written word in the Quran? 
my mother whenever i asked her something about uh, islam she would say yes i know i have read it somewhere i said where have you read it no i have read it so that is why i felt that there is a large number of people who do not know what they have read and where they have read and if at all what they have read is correct if it's any consolation all of the above is not specific to islam i dare say that very few people understand sanskrit text <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but i could only write about islam different religions same conversations let's talk about language since this podcast is all about language now you said that you know you made the case that pronunciation and semantics could change interpretation as in every language and every law yes. you make a mention of the book the syro aramaic reading of the quran now it is said that the prophet received the quran from jibril my question is in what language did he receive this is it is there a commonly accepted view i don't know and i have not mentioned that Oh uh, no you didn't mention it but the book title that you refer to is Syro Aramaic reading of the Quran and then when the prophet spoke the text someone to transcribe in what language would that have been do the scholars conclude or agree it was arabic i actually on this there there, there are texts available and this language was uh, arabic because i have quoted a a conversation where uh, when this when the quran was being compiled in a written format Uh, for the first time so the people who were doing that the kathibs they were advised that if there is a difference of opinion among you so the opinion of uh, the quraish will hold because uh, the uh, the quran was revealed in the language of the quraish so that was obviously the arabic language uh, so so there is a record of this kind of a conversation which i have quoted in the book but how it came to the prophet that i don't know no, there's no ref- reference to that so if the abiding version was arabic why the debates arabia was a collection of tribes and each tribe had a different dialect though they were speaking arabic but they had different dialects the precedence was given to the dialect of the quraish i get it completely so we still go back to uniformity now yes and it's pulled towards the center so coming to the present day can the muslim identity in india ever be independent of the political situation i mean as a muslim are you constantly being defined by what's happening around you uh uh until uh, a few years ago i did not see myself as a muslim journalist talking about muslim issues i have never spoken about muslim issues in the past because they were not really uh, it was not my work it was not uh, islam was not my career it was just my faith now i am identified as a muslim woman as a muslim writer a muslim journalist which uh, was not the case earlier is it not ironic in that case that your career principally your day job if you like is to write about national security and defense i mean you can imagine i national security is such a huge bogey so uh, people uh, and in india has a tradition of uh, not letting muslims get into the sensitive areas uh, there had been a unsaid diktat against uh, recruiting muslims in intelligence services and uh, sensitive positions within the ips or the uh, even the armed forces 
despite that, I, I have been doing uh, defense journalism for so many years. I have been visiting facilities, installations of, uh, and sensitive installations um, of the three armed service forces, Army, Air Force, Navy. I've visited uh, laboratories, uh, DRDO laboratories. So uh, nobody ever saw me as a Muslim person visiting these places. And I was never conscious of the fact that I'm doing something great uh, being a Muslim. Uh, but now, uh, in the last few years, uh, this identity has become some sort of a overriding identity over everything else that I have been doing or I have done in, uh, in the past. Well, if you feel this way, I can only imagine that those with less information and without the tools for critical analysis can only receive all of these things emotionally? Yes, and uh, I, I do not blame them if they feel uh, being victimized. I don't feel that I am victimized. The entire decade of 90s, uh, I faced nothing, uh, no discrimination. I was never conscious of my Muslim identity uh, at all. Uh, but in 2003, uh, 2002, when the Gujarat riots happened, when the Godra train burning happened, uh, that next morning, uh, a lady who I used to share an auto to uh, work, she knew I was a Muslim. Uh, so she told me on my face that uh, the translation being, this is what Muslims deserve. Deserve. They need, they need to be killed. They need to be you know, uh, hunted down and killed the way things were happening in Gujarat at that point. And I was I, I was speechless. I didn't react uh, to that because I, I didn't know what was the appropriate response to this. Should I tell her that, you know, wait for the investigations. We don't know what happened in Godra. No uh, investigations have happened. Uh, so we, should I reason it out like that? Or should I tell her to shut up and, uh, you know, see what Hindus are doing? Or, you know, but I didn't react because I, I did not have the... Uh, I did not have the resources uh, in terms of language and even probably thoughts to respond to her uh, outburst. Uh, so that is the difference. In the 90s, uh, I never faced anything and nobody ever made me feel that I was a Muslim. Uh, but in 2002, we had covered this huge distance that... Uh, the lady who had been sharing the auto with me for months thought it was appropriate to say this on my face. I've heard similar stories. They never cease to horrify me. And I'm very sorry that you had to go through this. And it brings me to my question. You are a writer, a defense journalist, an analyst. And as a consequence of this book, a Muslim writing about Muslims to a larger subset of Muslims. How do you stay objective? What is this? Is it some sort of out-of-body experience? <laughs> no, no, not at all. I think it's just training as a journalist. <laughs> no, actually, to be honest, I, I think the I'm not really objective. I'm very, I'm very critical. But still, I'm sure we all can appreciate how difficult it must be to remain objective at a time like this. That is, when the general majoritarianism is principally to rob the minorities of their happy place. Yes, that is true. That, that's true. And putting them uh, in a perpetual cycle of uh, despair, 
and fear. In your epilogue, you quote a poem from Nasir Akbar Abadi. Would you recite it for us now? Uh, you'll have to give me a moment. Yes, sure. So I'll read that portion in English here. Please. Someone asked a learned person, what has God made the sun and moon of? He answered, may you live long, but I do not understand what the sun and the moon are. To me, everything looks like roti. If you do not have food in your stomach, you can't do any work. All desire for entertainment and leisure ceases. A hungry person can't even focus on prayer. Even Allah is remembered only when one is hungry. Evocative. When was it written? Quite recent poetry? Actually, it's medieval. Uh, medieval is recent enough. <laughs> you end the book with the words, the Ummah had found a common cause. Another way of saying that is that persecution unites the persecuted. Yes. A somewhat cynical view, you think? No, it's it's true, actually. Uh, I think cynicism is not always bad. Uh, if it, if it uh, forces some kind of reflection, then I think it's good. Well, your book, Born a Muslim, is not cynical in the least. If anything, it has a certain optimistic ring to it. Well, I enjoyed reading your book, and I tried to do justice to the meaning, to the crux of the book. But I must say that what I didn't understand, you straightened out in this interview. No, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, I have done a lot of interviews since the book came out. And uh, this was very different and uh, very enjoyable. Oh, that's most kind of you to say. Thank you so much. And Ghazala Wahab, thank you for being my guest on The Literary City. Thank you for inviting me and giving me this opportunity. That was Ghazala Wahab, author of Born a Muslim. Now, there are links in the podcast description as to where you might buy that book. And I'll be back with that fun segment, What's That Word? Stay tuned. I'm back with What's That Word, where we look at words and phrases that we use all the time but never stop to think about. And to help me with it is my co-host, and as always, she'll introduce herself. Hello, my name is Pranati, but you can call me P. That's P with an A, not another E. And hello, P with an A. How's it feeling? <laughs> well, I'm very taken with Kazala Wahab. Mm-hmm. And nice interview, by the way. Thank you. But I'm not happy about the anti-Muslim sentiment. I hear you. Yeah. I mean, you were in Delhi during the Sikh riots. Was it similar? What was that like? Reprehensible. Mm. A lot of uncharacteristic hatred towards the Sikhs. Right. Uncharacteristic of whom? Uncharacteristic of people I knew, like friends. I didn't expect to hear them speak the way they did. Right. You know, uh, emotional and downright venomous, dumb. Yeah, that's just awful. But how did it play out? I mean, what happened to all that hatred? You know, that was as weird. It vanished the minute there were no politicians fueling it. And it was as though someone had just turned off a switch. I, I know it sounds like I'm oversimplifying it, but that's about how it played out. You know, whipping up the frenzy of a mob is actually much easier than we imagine. Yeah, I mean, just the other day I was reading a chilling op-ed in the Washington Post by Rana Ayub. Right. 
she was watching that uh, wretched movie i can't even bring myself to name it hmm. and they yelled her out of the movie theater because she told the person sitting next to her that she's a muslim yes i read that uh, you know i can't claim that i know what it feels like to be a part of the minority but i did benefit from some very erudite people educating me on uh, you know on the mind of a minority especially this one sick gentleman in new delhi mm who right that would be a shout out to one mr jaswan singh matharu a senior bureaucrat great guy and this was just after the riots when the sikhs were set upon and he was telling me about how he felt right many many years ago mm well so much for all that anywho p with an a what's that word <laughs> you used the word coaxing in your monologue yes i did it seems like an interesting word yes it is yeah so what's the noun form of coaxing coaxing it is an interesting word and i will get to the noun form in a bit but first you know the basic meaning of coaxing yeah i mean to persuade someone nicely you know hmm. maybe use a little flattery oh would you now <laughs> but yes you know that is at the heart of the etymology in its original form a coax was a fool a simpleton a ninny <laughs> really i can see that though <laughs> well yes you know in the late 16th century actually between 1560 and 1580 ish the slang phrase was to make a coax of someone which was to make a fool of someone exactly and it was spelled coax like the drink c o k e s and the gerund was c o k e s i n g coaxing you know present participle of course of course why didn't you just say that in the first place <laughs> it's a gerund <laughs> well yeah but when did it cease to have a negative connotation when did it cease to have i don't think it has ceased to have a negative connotation <laughs> you know true. think about it the person who can coax someone into something is clearly the smarter person <laughs> a manipulative and scheming individual who should be called out without delay on twitter with an appropriate hashtag yeah Hashtag #cooks <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag #cooks well that is funny and well there's your noun form as well yeah the truth be told i like cooks and rum <laughs> <laughs> cooks are stupid even without rum <laughs> but i dare say that you can create a cooks by simply by putting some rum in him <laughs> that is true or her hey well that's my cue bye And that's our show for the week. Thank you so much for being here and I'll see you again next Wednesday. 